Hello and welcome to the HRD Live podcast. This week, I was joined by Miles Stribling, Marketing Director EMEA at Hudson RPO. Miles and I had a fascinating discussion about the business strategy of RPO, the myths surrounding it, the success stories of blended RPO, and much more. Enjoy. Miles, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michael. So first of all, then, tell us more about the business strategy to focus on RPO. Yeah, so uh, Hudson set out as a as a recruitment business um, over twenty five years ago, um, both in in uh, Australia, um, the US, and uh, and the UK. Very differing markets in all of those regions, and over the years, varying sort of successes with regards to um, extending both our our recruitment um, business as well as our RPO offering. Two years ago, just under two years ago, the decision was taken actually to sell off the business. Uh, parts of the business were actually um, bought by members of the business, um, certainly in Australia. Um, but other parts of the business were, were sold off um, that actually allowed the uh, senior management uh, of the RPO business to take on full um, responsibility for that. Um, RPO as a standalone product is is quite unique. Um, we are a NASDAQ listed business, uh, the only sole um, standing RPO business uh, actually listed on NASDAQ. For that, it actually gives us a number of uh, accreditations to a certain extent, but also the ability to ensure that the products that we deliver are um, agnostic and also without conflict of the of the broader uh, or, or perhaps of a, of a recruitment um, delivery business. Um, as industry specialists, we can purely focus on our clients. Mm. We can focus on our candidates and certainly be more flexible around how we price it, how we deliver it, um, but also how we sort of approach our relationships. Um, when I say flexible, we really are a very flexible business model. Um, we can be very agile to build up to manage uh, recruitment projects. We can also develop very uh, complex and more sophisticated global models. Uh, we work for a large uh, global investment bank um, that over the last eight years um, we've extended from a handful of on-site recruiters to quite a few dozen uh, recruiters now hiring well over 3,000 uh, candidates per year and managing a large contingent workforce. Um, I guess the, the sort of the opposite to that would be a six-month mobilization of a project team to help um, one of our clients uh, actually looking to set up a new uh, office space out in, uh, out in Dubai Right. Really, the, the requirement for us was a six-month injection of knowledge uh, and expertise, um, some really focused uh, and targeted sourcing um, activity, and then really an opportunity to shake hands um, uh, and, and, and really sort of stay in touch, uh, as opposed to feeling that we've got to um, maintain longer-term relationships and really embed ourselves with the client, which sometimes from a client perspective can be... Uh, uh, one of the risks associated with uh, with engaging with RPO. So tell me a little bit then about some of the 
the myths that you encounter then when when discussing and evaluating those different recruitment models, whether it's in-house, outsourced or or a combination of both? Yeah, it's interesting about the myths. Um, the myths have, have, have probably changed over the years. Uh, if, if I go back to the to the to the to the late 90s, um, when RPO was was really just starting to uh, to take off, I think there was a perception that the uh, the, the people that got engaged in um, uh, in RPO or on-site activity were failed recruiters. Um, typically, that was um, directed by uh, I would probably say successful is is one way of looking, but probably the, the, the those that achieve. Uh, you know, good success around the sales. Right. So, you know, high achieving salespeople um, who perhaps are very, very good at um, opening doors, but providing a transactional model. Um, whereas actually, if you're looking at a, uh, a, a an embedded um, on-site recruitment model, those recruiters will have a very different set of skills. Certainly the attraction for me to join um, an RPO business back then I wanted to be a consultant. I didn't want to be a salesperson. Right. Uh, and I think, again, if you are on-site recruiters, invariably have to have very strong stakeholder management skills. We're accountable to deliver. Uh, we can't just choose to, uh, you know, if we're not getting the feedback we want from a particular client, we can't just sort of uh, go and focus elsewhere. We feel there's, there's more lower hanging fruit. You know, we have to deliver. We're trained to recruit. We're not trained to sell. Uh, again, I think there is a, there's a very significant difference in that. Uh, we're much more hands-on in the interview and assessment process, but also we're trained to, to source, to really harness the, the, the technology out there, to be much more focused on, on sourcing and far less reliant on, on advertising. Uh, that becomes more important, certainly as we're looking across European um, clients. We have to take a more strategic approach. Mm. Uh, again, this is not a transactional model. Even if it is a project, we still need to understand, probably get much closer to the business, the business objectives, the values of the business. You know, we're only representing one client each time. So how we actually represent, um, and we would certainly classify ourselves as ambassadors for that client into the marketplace. I think, you know, perhaps as a recruiter um, within a recruitment business, um, you've got a number of clients. You're not necessarily going to have that that exclusive relationship that we would. And um, as I say, it, it drives a very different skill set. Um, I think also, to us, the candidate experience and the client experience is, is absolutely key. Uh, you know, all of our um, measurements, our performance measurements and metrics go back to 360 degree feedback. You know, we have to be keeping all parties happy. Um, we're going to be coming back tomorrow working for that client right. uh, and the day after, hopefully, um, not just uh, introduce a candidate, get paid for it and uh, and move on. So tell me a little bit about some of the success stories then that you've encountered in demonstrating how this blend of both kinds of, of, of RPO works. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the, you, 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 you mentioned the, the, the blended approach and we're certainly <clears throat> seeing a lot more of that um, more recently. In the early days, it really was a case of actually taking on recruiters uh, or pure outsourcing of the recruitment function, uh, typically to allow the, the, the rest of the HR team to get on with their day-to-day -day duties. I think now, actually, the model has changed where a lot of clients already have a very good in-house recruitment uh, capability. 
Mm. Perhaps they have been more focused on um, vendor management, so filling jobs through 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 multiple sources. Uh, typically, you have referrals. They may do a, 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 a small amount of, of of direct recruitment themselves, but quite often working with with third parties. Um, what we're able to do is is actually provide what we would classify as, a, as an augmented approach to it. But actually, what we really want to do is work with those uh, the, 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 the in-house talent teams, again, enhance their experience, allow them to get on with other elements that, that may sit within their gender. Diversity inclusion is an excellent example. Right. Broader sort of L&D, um, retention and employee and employee um, um, branding and, uh, and, and, and value proposition. There are a lot of activities that are sort of sitting within within that environment. What we can do, uh, whilst offering to help across the spectrum, but quite often is now actually saying, well, let us look after the sourcing. You know, certainly through our, through our, our, our um, off-site uh, sourcing teams, we really can deliver uh, low-cost, um, highly suitable um, and, and well-assessed candidates into the mix uh, at, a, at, a, at a considerable cost saving than going through to uh, through to our external agencies. We can then introduce technology uh, again uh, that potentially can do the do the job um, uh, of, of, of many other uh, recruiters. I've got a, a good example at the moment uh, where we're working with a with a with a European based client uh, who is struggling to actually reach in, reach into a number of European countries. Mm. Um, through us working with them um, and really working on a, on their their actually a lot of their their digital media strategy, really focusing on on, on a, attractive um, targeting uh, targeted campaigns, um, we can we can I say triple. In fact, we'll do considerably more. Probably <laughs> probably probably they're they're, they're receiving um, roughly three to four CVs at the moment per vacancy. Being very conservative, we should be increasing that to upwards of 20 to 25. Wow. And whilst that's absolutely great, that clearly is creating a, a considerable amount of more work. Of course. But, and this is really where automation can come into play. Um, there is a lot of work now that we can actually um, create on, on online platforms that are completely enhancing the candidate experience, taking away a lot of the repetitive work, typically. Um, uh, it, creating a, a, a broader funnel um, but actually the 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 interaction with the client um, uh, talent partner will be considerably less than them actually working on only three candidates per hire so we can really increase that add value that certainly by bringing in online assessment it's bringing a, a, a degree of AI through chatbots and through the process um, also video uh, interviewing uh, language assessment skills, uh, interview coordination, and right the way through to onboarding. So, you know, that's 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 a key way now that we're starting to work with our clients. And if anything, we're now starting to probably see a, a, a broader shift, even into uh, into the world of uh, procurement. We're working with clients on the procurement side. Certainly, we're looking at solutions around statement of work to start to look at contingent and and off payroll workers. You mentioned briefly. You mentioned sourcing, and mm. I know that Hudson is uh, Hudson Up is widely regarded for its international sourcing academy. 
in Edinburgh. So I, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about why it's so critical for today's talent specialist to bridge multilingual capability with technological know-how. Why, why is that so crucial? Ultimately, a, a lot of our clients now uh, do have uh, European businesses and business interests. Um, whilst a lot of uh, those organizations, the core language, the business language would be English. Mm -hmm. um, we're also having to recruit into native tongue communities. And again, this is kind of where it comes back to us being proactively approaching people and the real uh, the, 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 the activity of the, of the specialist sourcer is not just to identify um, candidates through through broader sort of talent mapping um, and, 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 and heat mapping uh, technology, but then engaging. And we need to be talking their language. Um, mm -hmm. We need to be advertising in the right environments. Um, to a certain extent, a, a number of our clients actually will be looking for English and uh, a foreign language. Uh, again, I can think of a number of clients where their shared service centers, uh, again, will be based in Europe. They're going to need English to, to, to communicate internally from a mm. business perspective. But actually, their communications with their clients tend to be in the, in the native tongue. So we really do need to ensure that candidates we're reaching, that, that we're speaking to, uh, can converse. Uh, and again, some of our clients will actually want to do an interview, uh, carry out the interview process um, in that particular tongue. Same time also with a, with a, a broader uh, skills uh, and, and, and talent shortage, particularly around the, the areas of digital and, the, and the, obviously the digital transformation projects going on. Um, we can't identify all of these candidates within, within the UK. Right. So we are now having to go further afield um, to identify candidates that are eligible and may well be able to come and work in the UK. Or, again, working for our clients in Belgium, France, Germany, uh, Nordics, uh, amongst many others. So speaking of that growth, then, I, I, I understand that the RPO market is expected to grow with an extraordinary 21% uh, CAGR by 2022 by some estimates. Um, what do you think are the key influences and factors driving this trend and the growth of, of, of the RPO market? How do you expect that to, to change? Um, I would love to think that the... Uh industry will uh, achieve those uh, growth levels and uh, i think in all likelihood it uh, it possibly could if not uh, if not by 2022 by 2023 and i think there are a number of factors behind that the fourth if not fifth gener generation um rpo solutions that we're now delivering probably much more in tune with our clients than perhaps they were um previously this isn't about just sticking specialists on site and letting them get on with it we're much more integrated uh, and i would say we're much more integrated partners with our clients um the blended approach that i touched on again allows um the in-house uh specialists to uh probably reach into into other areas uh, and other agendas uh, again, I think I think clearly diversity and inclusion are, are incredibly important, but also how we retain or have they retain um, uh, employees 
uh, how they develop, and also a major focus on on home growing and and, and developing and training um, staff as well. So that allows us to really focus on on better um, sourcing activity. Certainly, technology. Uh, again, perhaps uh, we certainly have to be specialists in technology. A lot of technology is now very much targeted at RPOs being able to bring that to their clients as opposed to purely uh, on behalf of clients and having to deliver um, the services themselves. Um, us bringing more complicated, more, I say complicated, more sophisticated mm-hmm. um, models to a client, future-proofing, um, greater governance, greater transparency, uh, I think, again, is, uh, is absolutely key. And again, really understanding what good looks like, uh, using best practice um, and success stories across the, our various clients that we can bring under one roof, I think is, um, is, is, is incredibly important. I think invariably we can do more with less, and that's certainly something we would look to, uh, to always form as part of our, part of our, our, our solutions. And I'm being, being very honest, I think also um, agencies are, are on the back foot. Um, agencies are having to innovate, um, but they're also struggling under cost pressures, under businesses now looking for more and certainly more value than simply a, a transactional relationship. Um, so you're also seeing a major shift in the in the sort of traditional agency market. Um, certainly looking at a, a consulting, uh, I-35 and statement of work are, are sort of key facts that they're now having to bring into their uh, into their business and it's something that typically the RPOs um, already have quite a lead on. A promising note to end on there, Miles. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I hope you can join us again very soon. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HRD Live podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe at hrdconnect.com or via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts for a brand new episode every week. See you next time.